You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. And now, my interview with Bill McKibben, conducted on December 13th, 2005. Bill McKibben is the author of The End of Nature and Enough, Remaining Human in an Engineered Age. His latest book is Wandering Home, A Long Walk Across America's Most Hopeful Landscape, Vermont's Champlain Valley and New York's Adirondacks. Welcome to the program, Bill. Uh, It's very good to be with you. Bill, I'd like to talk to you about the conversation that's currently taking place within the genre of science fiction about global warming and rapid climate change. Tell us a little bit about how science fiction's viewpoint overall has changed since the golden age of the 50s as we headed into the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the new millennium. Well, I'm no expert on science fiction. In fact, I hadn't read a lot of it for many years. Uh, A few years ago, doing a project uh, on human genetic engineering and nanotechnology and advanced robotics and other emerging technologies, I went and looked at a lot of what was being written, and it was amazing to me to see how different the genre was from what I'd known as a boy, the kind of Buck Rogers in space, you know, uh, uh, cowboys and Indians among the stars kind of science fiction that I'd read as a boy, um, had been replaced. That sort of gee whiz quality was gone, and in its place, uh, uh, for the most part, a very dystopian and dark view of the future. Uh, the Blade Runner and Matrix and things are, are, are not exceptions at all. I think that they're fairly typical of an awful lot of science fiction. And I think the reason for that, if you think about it for a while, is pretty clear. These are the only people who have tried to figure out what the scale of oncoming technology is like when it's applied to real human beings, the characters in their writings. And time after time after time, the outcome of that thought experiment is the scale of this technology is is too big. It, it crushes the individual. Uh, it overwhelms them. And I think that's where at least some of that dystopian uh, quality comes from. What you're talking about then is a sort of lever effect of technology the current levels of technology allow us to create uh, powers disproportionate to our ability to understand their long-term effects. That's right. And in a kind of inadvertent way, climate change is the perfect example of that. Uh, Without knowing what we were doing, at least until fairly recently, we've now altered the atmospheric composition, uh, the composition of the Earth's atmosphere in such a way as to uh, uh, now guarantee one degree or another of really chaotic and difficult uh, uh, future for human beings to deal with. And, you know, to some degree, uh, uh, as we try to foresee that future, one of the tools we we have at hand are the imaginations of, of science fiction writers. Tell us a little bit about the usage of extrapolation, both in climatology and in science fiction, and how they seem to be a natural pair because of their mutual like of this tool. Yes. In, well, in a way, uh, um, they're very similar in, in this regard. 
We don't know for sure what's going to happen with global warming because it's an experiment that we've never run before. The level of CO2 in the atmosphere right now is higher than it's been at least for 650,000 years. That's how far we have good ice core data going back, presumably much longer than that, too. And we really have very little idea exactly how it will all play out. Uh, the computer modeling, though, gives us an ever grimmer set of scenarios that we're facing. Science fiction has coped with that in a few ways. You know, one of them is the uh, uh, just utter denial of someone like Michael Crichton, uh, uh, unable to, to face the implications of what we've created, um, um, you know, in a sort of childish way, just reacts against it, says it can't be true, I don't want to hear about it, I'm putting my fingers in my ears now. Um, there's also a kind of just, you know, uh, uh, catastrophist school, probably best exemplified by things like the, the day after tomorrow, um, that take certain possibilities and play them out to their most e extreme consequences. I don't think there are really any climatologists who can foresee a situation where we have a, 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 a sudden onset ice age in the course of, you know, eight hours that uh, uh, freezes all of, uh, you know, the northern hemisphere beneath a block of ice. Um, those are the kind of weak responses. But the great science fiction writing um, um, will help us uh, uh, understand what may be coming, understand why we might want to try to head it off as much as we can, and understand, too, that we're going to need to change in perhaps fairly profound ways in order to cope with what we've unleashed. And it may be that that kind of adaptation, that sense of how we'll need to change, uh, that's the most interesting. Uh, 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 you see it very much in the, uh, in, in, in the work of people like Kem Stanley Robinson and others uh, uh, who are really starting to grapple with these questions. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the uses, usage of facts in science fiction and in fiction in general. One of the uh, tools that Michael Crichton uses in State of Fear is a barrage of facts. We see graphs. We see re references to studies. I'd like to, to, to talk about how that works as a fictional element. Well, I mean, the book is, I, I, I reviewed the book. It's almost impossible to read. I mean, it's a cartoon in every way. What's interesting about it is precisely that attempt to use uh, uh, pieces of actual data, but use them in what turns out to be an incredibly ironic way. I mean, the book is uh, a book theoretically about intellectual honesty, uh, about how important it is to uh, honestly uh, assess where things are coming from. And, and the claim of the book is that environmentalists are, are dishonest about this and in fact, are do it only to raise vast sums of money, and to raise more sums of money will trigger tsunamis, and you know, on and on and on. I mean, it's just it's just sort of uh, sophomoric in many ways. But if you're going to make that argument about intellectual honesty, you have all the more reason to be intellectually honest yourself. And instead, what Crichton has done is cherry pick uh, uh, the tiny amount of of data and studies and whatever uh, that he thinks show that we have nothing to fear. In fact, the 
uh, overwhelming scientific consensus of the world's climatologists is that we have an enormous amount to fear, that human beings have never done anything as dangerous as what we're doing now by upsetting uh, uh, the atmospheric balance. And, and so I think in this case, the use of facts is to distract, uh, is to throw up a kind of smokescreen that obscures uh, the, the real set of facts. And of course, you know, in the in the years since uh, uh, Crichton's book has come out, not only have we had a real and tragic tsunami not triggered by environmentalists, we've also seen some of the key studies on which he relies uh, 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 turn out to be uh, uh, just incorrect. I'd like to talk to you a bit about one of his points in this book involves the usage of the and his speeches surrounding it involves the usages of double-blind experiments. And he cites this as a reason to distrust environmental science because it hasn't been employed, the double-blind technique. Could you talk about, is that possible to even do that in environmental science? As I said beforehand, I mean, what makes global warming in particular such a difficult problem to deal with is that we're running an experiment, uh, you know, that we've never run before, and an experiment uh, in which the test tube is made up of the entire uh, 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 surface of the Earth and the atmosphere above it. Uh, There's no way to kind of wash out that test tube and try again or do a bunch of different runs or whatever. The the best that we're able to do and what people have been working on now for, for 25 years is to build very sophisticated computer models of the climate and play with the different variables. Uh, Those computer models are now uh, remarkably robust. They recreate in reverse the climate that we've had so, you know, to date. And they're the, the thing that's making it clear just how dangerous the future is. If if that's all we had, um, we still wouldn't be at the kind of level of consensus that we are. But you know, the world has been hard at work peer reviewing those computer models, and we've had you know nine of the ten warmest years on record in the last decade. 2005 will be the warmest year on record. We have massive ice melt across uh, uh, both the Arctic and across. Uh, glaciers all around the world. We see changes in growing season uh, 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 in in all temperate latitudes. Um, The signals have become unmistakable, and and the danger from those signals has become unmistakable. And at this point, the only responsible thing to start doing, uh, you know, is figure out how to do something about it. One of the ways that science fiction shapes our attitude towards science is by creating linguistic forms. And I'm thinking here in particular of genetic engineering, how uh, genetic engineering food products are now called frankenfoods, and it immediately casts an aura of fear towards these products. You can't hear frankenfoods. Nobody wants to go down and order themselves a frankenburger. So I'm wondering (laughs) if you could talk about how you feel the Language of science fiction is shaping the debate about uh, climate change. Well, I'm not sure that it's yet really entered into, you know, in in climate change in the same way that it has in genetic genetic modification. And I think it's an area where we have to be careful. Um, 
And sometimes even uh, uh, powerful terms like that can obscure the real dangers. I mean, I'm here at, at Middlebury College in Vermont, uh, where we've had a very active debate on genetically modified agriculture over the years. And, you know, it may or may not be true that it poses some great risk to human health. What is very clear, uh, you know, the work of my colleagues and the people around this part of the world have made very clear, is that it poses great danger to the structure of family farming, that it's uh, a, a, a big assault uh, on, on small farms and a way to, you know, uh, make sure that a kind of corporate model of agriculture spreads around the world with all kinds of disastrous social results. And so sometimes, you know, science fiction or uh, uh, sensationalism of any kind um, can get us thinking about the wrong thing, the easiest thing to think about, and ignore some of the deepest threats. And this brings us back to something you mentioned earlier and I wanted to really hone in on, is the idea of how science fiction's characters, the specific skill that a writer brings to his writing as in creating realistic characters, how that enables us to have a better understanding of the effects of science in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You've read the, say, the Mars trilogy. Yes, yes, by Kim uh, Stanley Robinson. Yeah, or his more recent books on on climate change. Um, they're wonderful examples of writing about how science is actually done. Um, the sort of mix of uh, inspiration and perspiration and social relationships that uh, uh, govern how science takes place, and it's very. Uh, 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 clear about the role that politics and money and everything else plays in that. It's a fully, f- his characters are fully fleshed out. Uh, they they help us see things, as opposed to, say, Crichton's characters who are just cartoons and behave um, um, in the crudest ways governed by the most simple stimuli. Um, the reason that those books about Mars were so amazing was that they really uh, uh, understood how people might change and be changed by uh, a a landscape. They were uh, 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 very remarkable pieces about the influence of place on psyche, uh, uh, and and that's an important part of trying to understand uh, how science, indeed how any human enterprise, really works. I'd like to talk to you a bit about something that Crichton calls the precautionary principle. Tell us a little bit about your understanding of what the precautionary principle is. He's not very enthusiastic about it, and Kim Stanley Robinson actually is. So I'd like you to maybe describe that conversation from a scientist's point of view. Well, the precautionary principle is, you know, an idea that's developed in the last couple of decades. I mean, it's an idea that developed in the last couple of decades. That's how a sort of academic or, I mean, in fact, it's basic common sense. I mean, it sort of says, if you don't know what the outcome of something's going to be, and that outcome might be not so good, then don't do it until you know more about it. I mean, it's basically what you tell, you know, your your uh, six-year-old, you know, when it comes time for the discussion about sticking beans up your nose, you know. Um, and this elementary idea that you wouldn't rush into things that might be dangerous is 
really antithetical to an awful lot of how we conduct business in this country, which is to do as quickly as possible anything that we can think of to do, if it might make money for somebody someplace, and then, you know, sort out what the consequences might be. Well, you know, by the end of the 20th century, there were a heck of a lot of consequences to sort out floating around. Uh, not least of which was the fact that we had managed to destabilize the, the, the climate around us. Uh, libertarians uh, uh, and people who think that short-term gain is the most important uh, uh, feature tend to reject the precautionary principle. It puts a damper on, uh, uh, on their activities. People who value, people who are sort of at some level conservative in, in, in the most basic meaning of the term, who value the world that we know around us, uh, its, its environment, its human relationships, uh, and don't want to see them suddenly changed in unpredictable ways, uh, uh, tend to value this precautionary principle. And I think it's important really to realize just how radical, just how radical the ways we are behaving now are. Um, I mean, to say, let's fill the atmosphere with carbon, let's double the atmospheric concentration of CO2 and see what happens. That's about as radical an idea as you could, as you could put forward. Um, um, and yet somehow the people who are insisting on doing it claim for themselves the mantle of conservatism and, and, uh, uh, and, and attack as militants those who would propose some kind of slower change in the world around us. I'd like to talk about this idea of the fear and safety culture and how that plays out in science fiction. Can you talk to us a little bit about how one of the things you mentioned in uh, Enough, uh, Crichton's vision of prey as a you know, a hellish version of what can happen with nanotechnology. So I'd like to, to talk to you. Do we really live in what he calls a state of fear? And is that helpful to us? And how are we brought to that? How do, what part does science fiction play? And the media and the publicizing of these ideas in bringing us to that state of fear? It doesn't seem to me that we do live in much of a state of fear. Uh, if anything, the opposite, um, that we're, um, um, you know, that, that especially as Americans, we're inclined to believe that everything is going to work out and that someone will invent something to take care of whatever problem that there is and it'll all happen in time and don't trouble me with it. Uh, and to some degree, you know, that's the work of this older science fiction that we were talking about at the beginning. Uh, this, you know, the sort of idea that there's always going to be some other invention uh, that will rescue us, and you know, uh, uh, is 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 profound. Um, I don't think that there's much sign at all that we live in a safety-obsessed culture. One has to uh, kick and scream to get even uh, the most basic environmental regulations through, the ones that in the last 20 years have cleaned up the air and the water around us, um, though they haven't yet begun to address the biggest environmental problems that we face, like, like climate change. Um, and at the moment, uh, you know, Michael Crichton and his, you know, friends in corporate America are winning virtually every battle that comes before Washington. 
they're dismantling much of the regulatory framework uh, that prevented the worst uh, uh, excesses. And I'm afraid we're going to be paying for that for a very long time. And it, it's useful. You know, science fiction can play a useful role for us in helping us to understand what some of those consequences might be. Crichton is a particularly interesting character, of course, because he's made his career uh, writing books about uh, that, that take as real the most unlikely possibilities, i.e., we will reconstitute dinosaurs from small fragments of DNA. Those dinosaurs will then eat us. You know, That's presented as a, uh, a, a real threat that we should take seriously, at least to the point of being scared about it. You know, But then confronted with an actual problem, uh, uh, one that uh, uh, the world's academies of science and things have said is the biggest problem that we face, global warming, um, um, he wants to, to, to sort of wave some kind of rhetorical wand and wish it all away. I'd like to talk to you about the idea of putting the genie back in the bottle. This is one of the concerns of science fiction. So I'm wondering if how you feel about that and how that um, plays out in the fiction of both Crichton and Kim Stanley Robinson. Talk more about what you mean. Well, the idea that we have, uh, for example, um, genetic engineering is, is the most obvious uh, choice, but uh, that we have this technology. It's already out there. It's already being used. We can't. It's really hard to stop it. We've already got cars everywhere. We're completely, yep. utterly dependent on all this carbon technology. How do we put that carbon genie back in the bottle? It's been out for 100 years. Well, I mean, clearly the, that one is not going back in the bottle in quite those ways. We, we, we have to figure out, what we have to do with carbon is figure out other ways to accomplish the tasks that we need to accomplish. Uh, we need to figure out how to substitute uh, buses and bicycles and hybrid cars and all those sort of things for, you know, driving around in SUVs. We need to do it pretty quickly. Um, that's work that doesn't require uh, uh, necessarily incredible technical innovation. It requires all, some of that, and it requires even more in the way of kind of social innovation and, and real political will. There are other technologies, technologies that are just now uh, beginning to, to, to assert themselves um, that uh, as of yet aren't uh, uh, the, the genie remains in the bottle, and I think we'd be wise to keep her there at least for a while. Uh, genetic engineering is, is a good example. Clearly, we have a lot of agricultural biotechnology, and clearly we've begun to do all kinds of work with different animals. What we haven't done yet is clone human beings or produce what laymen would correctly call designer babies. There are plenty of people who, who wish to do that, um, because they think the human species can be improved, but that's at least as radical an experiment as filling the air with carbon dioxide, and I think we'd be very wise. The, the burden of, of my work in, uh, enough is that we would be very wise to hold off on that uh, uh, until we have a much better understanding of why we're doing it and what it is that we're doing. Back in the 1960s, Alvin Toffler came out with a book called Future Shock, which was about the increasing uh, pace of change. We no longer really experience future shock. We're used to this rapid pace of change. I'm wondering if you could talk about how science fiction helps to a certain extent perhaps numb us to this. 
That's an interesting. Um, that's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, one of the one of the things we've come to take for granted is that there should be a very very rapid pace of change, and you know, science fiction to the degree that it sort of celebrates that, and I think that's what it used to do, uh, has helped uh, um, has helped accelerate that trend. But more and more and more, I think, it's science fiction authors above all else who are understanding that that pace may have gotten out of control, uh, that the damage to the world around us and to human society from that kind of um, endless uh, uh, momentum and from the fact that eventually it means technologies of a scale that threaten the human scale, I think those are the strong warnings that we're getting now. And I, I think that uh, we do very well to pay attention to them. Uh, you know, um, um, people oohed and odd about the Matrix because of the cool special effects or whatever. But I hope, too, that people, and I think that people were internalizing some of the um, uh, 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 deeper message um, just of the idea of a world where human beings. Uh, you know, where the only thing left to do was to try to rebel against a technology whose scale was so overpowering. I wanted to ask you, too, something that Kim Stanley Robinson mentioned to me is uh, a report by the Royal Society about the acidification of the ocean that uh, Mr. Robinson suggested helped Tony Blair get religion, as he put it, on uh, global climate change. Could you tell us a little bit about that and your understanding of it? Well, the, um, you know, as we've changed for a long time, people assumed that the oceans were going to soak up the excess carbon dioxide that people were producing by, you know, running engines of one kind or another and burning down forests and whatever else. And it was really at, at, at a certain point in the uh, uh, mid-20th century, when scientists began to realize that, in fact, the oceans were at saturation for carbon, uh, that we really began to worry about the fact that it must be accumulating in the atmosphere. And that was kind of the beginning of the greenhouse era. There have been a lot of reports in the last 10 years that have scared uh, uh, a few world leaders anyway. Uh, uh, and Tony Blair, at least some of the time, is one of those people who seems interested in doing something. Other times, like in the last few months when he's been backing off and, and not helping uh, uh, advance the, the, the global cause, one has you know, reason to wonder. Um, I'm beginning to think that it's only when threats become so real and obvious uh, uh, to people on the ground, that they put real demands on their political leaders to change that will get the kind of, quote, leadership, unquote, that we actually need uh, in order to begin to break out of this set of problems. And one thing I'd like to ask you about science fiction is what I would call maybe the anti-oracle effect, in that when we read a book like 1984, we're pretty good at avoiding that the creation of 1984. And I think that, uh, as you mentioned in Enough, Brave New World has gone a long way towards putting the brakes on uh, all-out genetic engineering. I'd like to talk to you about that effect of envisioning something we don't want to happen. 
I think that's very true, and I think a sort of classic example in the sort of nonfiction genre was probably Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, in the late 1960s. Um, you know, there was nothing that mobilized more people to go out and work on the issue of family planning, of population uh, 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 planning around the world, and the results were spectacular. Human fertility in the last 30 years has fallen like a rock. The average woman on this planet had six children in 1970, and that number is below three children and continuing to fall now. And I think that one could <coughs> credit Ehrlich and people like him uh, with you know, very much helping to avert at least some of the disaster that they had forecast. The real, most difficult, insidious problems are the ones that happen most slowly and undramatically, carbon being a great example. Look, when we were threatened by nuclear weapons, which we still are, we could at least imagine, uh, with the help of you know the unfortunate illustrations over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and with the work of a lot of very talented science fiction writers, we could imagine what that kind of world might be like, where we were blowing things up on that scale. We were able, therefore, so far, to restrain ourselves from doing it again and build the kind of global system that might rein in nuclear weapons. But global warming is the result of the explosion of billions of pistons in billions of engines every hour of every day around the planet. And it's much harder for our imaginations to connect those with the devastating uh, 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 damage that they're now threatening to produce. And therefore, it will take uh, 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 real works of passion and power, both in nonfiction and in fiction, for us to begin to really internalize what it is that we're doing and therefore begin to be able to act creatively against it. We've been speaking with Bill McKibben. He's the author of The End of Nature and Enough, Remaining Human in an Engineered Age. Thank you very much, Bill. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much. Great pleasure.